Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Establish, brought to you by Shake Up the Establishment. We are a youth-run, nonpartisan, community-centered nonprofit that focuses on translating knowledge within various topics of climate justice to make this information more accessible to those living in what is currently Canada. I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that we have the privilege of living, working, and thriving upon land that Indigenous peoples have lived and cared for and continue to do so since time immemorial. We acknowledge that our address resides on Treaty 3 land, which is the territory of the Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabeweke, Attawandarok, Mississaugas, and Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. Today, we will be speaking with Daniel Taylor from the Greenbelt Farmers Market Network and Paul Miro from EcoSpark. This episode is part of a larger project called The Voices of the Greenbelt, consisting of five podcast episodes, a mini documentary, and virtual workshops. This project has been supported by the Greenbelt Foundation. The Greenbelt Foundation's grant and research activities are made possible by the generous support of the Government of Ontario. Such support does not indicate endorsement by the Government of Ontario of the contents of this material. My name is Trey Lewis, I use the pronouns, and I'm a two-spirit, transmasculine, non-binary, mixed Indigenous, and racialized youth. I'm a public speaker, project manager, and grassroots leader with BIPOC organizations, as well as taking part in independent research on decolonizing methodologies, epistemologies, and promoting intersectionality and harm reduction. Well, thank you for joining us. Let's start off with um, just a bit of background and some the values of the Greenbelt Farmers Market Network. I don't know a lot about it, um, but I have done a little bit of research um, with this project. I really love the kind of the goals of the network, how it really uh, promotes inclusivity, education, nourishment, all those types of things. So um, could you, first of all, just describe like what the Greenbelt Farmers Market Network is? The Greenbelt Farmers Market Network is um, a group of about 100 farmers markets uh, really loosely brought together around a single goal of just building, sustaining, and kind of growing the local food impact that they have. We flow through about, you know, two to three million dollars of local food sales. So it's like, we're not really a network until there's bad weather. Um, but uh, we used to run, so we were founded in 2011, and I think we're both most well known for running the first market managers conference that brought together just folks that organize farmers markets from across southern Ontario and the Greenbelt region into one room for the first time. And uh, that's been happening every year up until the pandemic happened, and uh, we're just waiting for things to go back. So really simply, we're an organization that just helps support farmers markets when they need help. We're there to help advocate for them um, you know, on their behalf. Uh, and we're here to just get everyone together under one roof um, and see what kind of synergy and organic stuff happens from that. Thank you for sharing that. I really love how local it is and how it's like amplifying local businesses and like farm farmlands and getting those sources local. Um, McGill actually has a farmer's market and I hope like it opens this spring and summer. I think it will because last summer it was open in spring. Um, it's, it's a really interesting thing, farmer's markets. Even though I don't know much about farming, I just, I really love how it really does pr- like promote growth, like professionally in the community, economically. I really love those aspects of it and just how like there's a huge integrity to it. I think it's like food sovereignty really and like trustworthiness and like the community as well. Um, I really love that. I, it's so great to hear about it. So I guess I want to ask you then, what are some of the general goals of the Greenbelt 
farmers market network. Well, on, on paper, is to you know connect farmers with urban communities. But really, I think what we're trying to do right now is we're trying to push push the boundaries of what a farmers market means. Um, our our main goal is so it's not rebranding, but it's just kind of reorienting. Um, we all have a picture of what a farmers market is in our heads when we think of one, right? Um, there's ton. It's easy to lampoon it, um, but let's be honest. You know, it can be a very pastoral kind of space. Um, they can be very white spaces and challenging for a lot of communities to break into or or feel comfortable in. And they really are tailored towards a certain social economic class. We know from data we've collected uh, and surveys that we've done um, that the average customer of a farmer's market is a kind of middle-aged, mid-50s white woman. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that, but we see if farmer's markets right, are going to have a future, they need to both reconnect with the ancient roots of what those spaces are, which is really, I mean, look at Europe, look at the Middle East, look at Asia. Markets are just everywhere, right? Street vending is an integral part of those cultures. And we spent about 50 years just wiping that clean from the North American city. So we're reintroducing a thing as old as time. So our real goal is how do we push the boundaries of what farmers markets can be right now, but we need a more exciting vision for what they can grow into. I totally agree with you. I've really always been um, looking for like ways to connect community stuff, even in just like general public centers and like waiting rooms. And also it makes me think of this Loblaws that I used to go to when I was a kid. I still like have gone there when I go back to Toronto, but when I was younger, it was more like, there were more like d- displays of like fresh fruits and vegetables and bakeries. Like there was an actual, um, it was more of a life to it. You know, you could tell that there was at least a lot of things in there that were fresh and that were local. But now when I walk in there, it's, it's very much more processed. Like they redesigned the whole thing and it's very like, you just see the packaged stuff. Um, it's all just kind of cramped into the place and it's really unfortunate, even though, yeah, supermarkets definitely, um, they're not always like, they're not usually like the local choice, but just like from someone who like had to get frozen dinners as a kid or like just general food like that, or even, um, birthday cakes, like something simple like that. I feel like it's not as, um, I don't know. It's just not as like fresh or like it's not as good in a display anymore like you can really see how packaged and processed everything is i also read that you're part of more specifically the leslieville farmers market which is something that it's interesting because i'm like in toronto pretty close to leslieville and um they always have this farmers market it's at like queen and like woodward or something yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> is that it yeah it's um I've always passed by there and i've always wanted to see it but um I know that during the pandemic, there are a lot of communities who have used more outdoor spaces and natural spaces because it was okay to do so um, following like health guidelines. Mm-hmm. So I guess I was just wondering, is that something that the farmer's market has been able to do or have they like, has there been more like taking breaks because of like the pandemic? I think, you know, when the pandemic first struck farmer's market Ontario, who's the provincial kind of association um, along with ourselves and other groups, um, essentially kind of lobbied the provincial government to make farmers markets deemed essential. So they operate outside, uh, you know, it was much safer um, when everyone was scared or just trying to figure out how to navigate food shopping again. 
And most importantly, is a lifeline for farmers because their main kind of revenue sources are markets and restaurants and then, you know, catering and bulk sales. So restaurants disappeared overnight. Um, you know, they weren't buying from local farms. Uh, so keeping markets open was really important. But for example, in Toronto and a lot of different other kind of municipalities around the Greenbelt, they said that you had to have a virtual option to, to be open. So kind of overnight, every market had to figure out like how to do online deliver package and sorting logistics, which like, I mean, come on, like markets are mostly run by volunteer groups. So a lot did close down. Um, but a fair few stayed open and mainly those that we supported um, and others that really kind of jumped on with two feet kind of thrived during the market because they provided this really great, really essential outlet for communities to still get together in a safe way. Yeah, it must have been really difficult to navigate during the pandemic. There was so many like back and forth between like opening, like closing of like different. Pretty miserable. It is. Yeah, I can also as a student too, like the opening of the university, like the classes and then the closing of them and just like the different precautions and just like general rules like of socializing. Like it's, I can't even imagine like for a farmer's market, it just must have been insane. But I am glad to hear that at least some of them did thrive, thrive and were able to work through it relating to that i'm just i'm really glad that just the farmers market network exists to increase like access accessibility and awareness of like seasonal food local food um it's just so important to communities and to really like building that um that like grassroots like community knowledge really and also just like it's yeah like you said equity to understanding each other's um circumstances and like what we can't afford and what we can't afford and like why local shopping and local food is so important to kind of breaking down those barriers with getting resources and also just promoting sustainability really it's um it's it seem it sounds like a really great network to be a part of um so i guess i just want to ask you maybe um being a part of the network is there something you can tell us about the farmers markets that maybe a lot of people don't know yeah sure i think i think most people assume that markets are run by their cities um, so, you know, I ran the Lesville Farmer's Market um, since I was a wee tot. So it was my first one. Um, I guess I was like 24, 25, like 10 years ago, pretty much. And I've always run that part time. Um, you know, right now, I still kind of do. Um, but, you know, we have market managers that we hire for it. Um, but most markets are run by communities and volunteers. And... They make so little money, it's crazy. So, you know, farmers markets have, like, they have a really strong economic impact by how much money flows through them. Customers right to farmers. I think what we don't really understand about farmers markets is that they're run by volunteers. The business model sucks. So farmers are doing well, but the folks organize it, no one's getting paid. Um, And that if you have one near you, you're pretty lucky because... What we're really working on as a proto-industry or a sector or what have you is how the heck can you make a model to run a farmer's market? Because every developer wants one. Like There's a high demand for someone to organize these things. Um, but we need to kind of flash into the future and find a way for that to work. So a lot of, yeah, that's something I'd say that people don't really realize about their 
farmer's market is that they're broke. Thank you for sharing that. Um, my, my partner yeah, was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> no, like, honestly, um, the creating of business models for stuff like this, it is really difficult. So I guess just speaking of the market, I do know that the Greenbelt Foundation is like associated with it and they've supported it before and they help kind of run the market network. How do you think um, the market network contributes to the Greenbelt's overall sustainability? The foundation, you know, I will not put words in their mouth, but I think it's safe to say that they've always seen value in farmers as stewards of conservation, ecological restoration. Like we know that highly diverse, sustainably run local farms, they have more wildlife on them. They're better for soil. Um, they're just generally better for the biome that they're around from hydrology to air or to, I don't know that kind of stuff, but there's science involved for sure. We need to be creative with how we create economic opportunities for those farmers. And that's where we come in. So that partnership has always been kind of fun enough to be that on the ground in the community actor, while they can kind of stay at 10,000 feet and have that radar perspective of the entire Greenbelt itself and how local farmers and our work can best contribute towards those sustainability and conservation goals. Definitely. Um, since in doing my own research, Greenbelt is extremely fundamental to food security and sovereignty and really just a regional like investment in local food and agriculture. It's just, it is a really big thing. I think it's something I remember I drove by one of the signs on like the 407 or something. Um, and it's just kind of something welcome that I, the green belt. yeah, welcome to the green belt. Yeah. And it's just something that I'm so glad to know about more. If you want the best visualization of the value of the green belt, um, on the, by the Humber river, it kind of juts down into Toronto, the closest. Um, if you're driving out of the city towards like, like Simcoe kind of thing, um, like we'll take a beach, solo beach. Um, if you drive towards there, you will see essentially big box warehouse stores. Um, you know, they're mostly like large warehouse store stuff. And they just stop on a street and the street over is a farm. And it's, I think it's the closest encroachment you have where there's no kind of gray field, green field between development and the green mouth itself. Drive that little route. It's really nice, but um it's, uh, I think beyond everything, we need to really always remain vigilant that a ton of people would rather the green belt didn't exist. Um, so it's good to kind of constantly show it off and make sure it's useful to people that live in Toronto and, and those municipalities because, uh, you know, it, our votes are what keeps it alive. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, definitely. Even though, yes, like places like Toronto are super expensive to live in. Um, I don't think the solution is to like cut down so much of and just because it really does protect like ecologically, hydrologically. It's just so significant to the environment. Um, it also mitigates like flooding and like just general um, just general things that are like that are so important to nature and just helps us as humans really um, be in safe proximity to nature, too. Um, so I guess with the farmer's market, definitely the Greenbelt Foundation has contributed a lot to it. It's definitely very significant to your work. Mm -hmm. I guess I just wanted to ask you, how has the Greenbelt Foundation and just contributed to the success of the Greenbelt Farmer's Market Network? So, you know, the, the foundation, they were an early adopter. 
they saw the value and what this could grow into and like the opportunities there. So they provided that funding, I think, when the environment was very, very resource scarce. It was a bit of a desert. Um, and then when we came on in 2018, things were really shifting. So that's when we saw a great chance to grow and kind of use that uh, trampoline that the foundation had built for us to start to kind of engage new funders, engage in consulting work and build their own projects and just leveraging the market network itself. Honestly, yeah, like really looking at it as, um, that's something I've been thinking about a lot is how there are a lot of projects people do where it's very like recreation to them, like farmer's markets. Um, I have heard that before that it has been among middle-class or just like even just, just generally, like it's been seen as a recreation rather than more of like a vital like community action. And mm-hmm. I think the pandemic has really showed a lot of people how food scarcity is a thing. Um, even though it didn't affect maybe everyone before, it's certainly affecting everyone now. Um, like, like there's so much scarcity I'm thinking for Inuit indigenous peoples. It, it's a huge thing like location and proximity. And it is a huge thing in terms of food security. Indigenous food pathways can be unrecognizable to Eurocentric agriculture, right? Food forests, polycultural like development, you know, um, so I think, you know, one of the things people would love to see is broaden the definition of farming and growing. Yeah, like farming, that type of way of agriculture and getting food, um, that was actually introduced, yeah, not just by Europeans, but also when indigenous peoples were placed onto reserves, that was the main assimilation policy is that you have to be farmers. It's like, really, we need to broaden the definitions of farming and just like, what is it to be a, like a food kind of preserver? And like, what does it mean to be um, to take part in food sovereignty. And I really love that you shared that. So I guess just to finish off, so definitely the Greenbelt plan, they've established really a land using framework to determine where urbanization shouldn't occur to protect the current and future generations of it. And also to create a more stable economy, clean environment, social equity. And I think that's something that also the Farmers Market Network really uh, does a lot in their work and this initiative to really include everyone in food security and food sovereignty. Thank you, Daniel Taylor, for sharing your insightful perspectives with us. Now on to our next guest, Paul Miro from EcoSpark. So Paul, let me let me ask you, tell us maybe about just generally about your work at EcoSpark. Essentially what we do is we use citizen science to actually kind of reconnect people with nature. Um, and so, you know, many of us will go out and we'll walk a trail and we'll look and see. It's like the trees are all green. Aren't they beautiful? But we don't actually look and see like, OK, is this a healthy ecosystem or a healthy environment or not? And uh, so today we have all kinds of invasive species in our forest that are changing the nature of the ecosystem. So what we do is we take um, groups of either community groups or school groups, and we teach them how to use citizen science to identify, you know, some of the different parts of nature. And uh, it's really great when you see, you know, young people particularly going out and uh, um, discovering there are whole communities of, uh, of non-humans that live in our forests and in our streams. And uh, um, it's like they see a whole new world. So you know, I like to say we like to put the awe back into nature 
um, and help people realize that, uh, you know, we're not alone on this planet. There are many other communities and, uh, you know, there's a, a natural system that works. And uh, when we understand that system, we can make better, better decisions around how we use our resources and, uh, and how we plan our cities and live our lives. So if you were to ask me in one sentence, I would say our goal is to put the sense of awe back into nature for uh, young people and old people alike throughout the greater Toronto region. Absolutely. I love the word awe when, it, when we talk about nature. I think a lot of us really take it for granted or nature is really seen as kind of people really see it as an obstacle rather something to actually take care of. Um, and that's really where stewardship, stewardship comes from. Um, yeah. I guess I really wanted to ask you specifically, can you maybe give like an example of like citizen science? Like, is that, what exactly does that mean? Sure. Um, what I'll tell you about maybe is uh, an event that's coming up at uh, the end of April, the beginning of May. Um, and it's called the uh, City Nature Challenge. Um, it's actually a global event, and EcoSpark organizes the event for the greater Toronto area. Um, and essentially, we use um, an, an app. It's an app called um, iNaturalist. And uh, people can download it onto their phone. And, um, and then you go out into nature and you actually take pictures of plants, insects, fungi, um, you know, any kind of living thing. You can take a picture and the app will help you identify what it is. And then you save it onto the iNaturalist website. And... Um, so as individuals go out and do that, we start to build up um, a database of all the different species that actually live, you know, in the greater golden horseshoe with us. So you can see, you know, how many different species of birds, how many different species of, you know, insects, of fungus. And, uh, um, and one of the things that EcoSpark is doing is we're mapping this out now. So um, you know, when you're looking and you're, you know, you're looking, what are the signs of spring? Well, um, the city nature challenge helps people realize like, oh, there are certain birds that we are going to see at the very beginning of spring. You know, we're going to see the robins, we're going to see the red winged blackbirds. Um, you know, there are certain insects that come at certain times and, uh, and they breed at certain times. So, um, citizen science is helping people go out and discover, you know, what tools are available to them to identify the world around them and to contribute that to, uh, um, to a, a research database that scientists can then use. And, you know, last year there were over a thousand, sorry, not a thousand, there were over a million observations from around the planet of um, different signs of nature. And so now researchers who are looking at things like bird migrations or, you know, any number of different uh, research questions can go to the iNaturalist database and they can download that information um, and they can use that as they're assessing, you know, what's happening with bird populations, what's happening with insect populations. And unfortunately, those are on the decline and this helps them quantify that and to... Uh, to identify what are some of the different challenges and problems that say migrating birds are facing because of climate change. 
So it's giving giving citizens the tools to understand the world around them. That's really interesting. I think for me, I can relate to that a little bit as someone who's trying to do more foraging and like um, go more local in terms of shops. It's like, I'm always wondering like, what, how can I identify trees better or birds better? Um, just when I'm trying to like, um, like collect for tea or for sap or something like that. That's something I've been interested in, in like stewardship, stewardship efforts, really. Um, I wanted to ask you, so EcoSpark has recently launched this, um, the Greenbelt Youth Ambassador Program. It's a free program that's going to provide like high school students around the GTA with like this opportunity to experience nature better and they celebrate nature better. Can you maybe tell us a bit about that? Sure. So the program is actually for anyone, you know, ages, I think it's 15 to 30. Um, so it's high school, university, and people that are recent grad, grads from university. Um, and essentially we, so when we first started the program, uh, it's about three years ago, um, we had been planning to do a bunch of bus tours and, uh, you know, bring youth together in conferences and stuff. And then COVID kind of hit us. <laughs> so like everyone, it kind of took wind out of our sails for a little while. Um, but throughout this process, we've also had an education component, which was explaining to folks, you know, what is the green belt and why is it important? Um, and as the provincial government is looking at updates and they're looking at, uh, you know, expanding highways and building new highways, um, understanding, you know, what are the impacts of those things? And so um, what we've done is br we've uh, brought in experts from uh, a whole variety of different backgrounds who uh, have done webinars with the youth ambassadors. Um, we've introduced them to the Ontario um, Environmental Registry um, so they can see like, oh, okay, what updates are happening? And if the provincial government is asking for input, can we develop a youth ambassador or youth um, uh, response to that input and, uh, and submit something to the Ontario uh, Environmental Registry. So we've done a number of those as the uh, province is looking at uh, things like uh, density of housing. So when they're planning new housing um, and right now they're having all of the municipalities update their uh, long-term plans based on their new uh, density targets and growth plans. Um, and so what we what we have is the youth ambassadors are actually uh, developing a sort of standard response um, so that they can then take part in um, in those processes, because one of the I think one of the biggest challenges is the youth voice is really not it's not being heard by by different levels of government, whether that's the municipal, provincial or the federal levels of government. and. Uh, it's hard to get a youth perspective because, you know, if you're in high school or university, you're usually pretty busy. And um, the processes that are set up are not really geared toward helping somebody learn and understand that it's, you know, um, there's a lot of inside baseball. So what we're doing is introducing uh, uh, young people to uh, people who understand the game. Um, and who can help them sort through and understand, like, what are the impacts of 
you know, building new highways and new neighborhoods and subdivisions out in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, is that going to make it, uh, is that going to make their lives more affordable, more uh, fulfilling, or is it going to be, uh, we're building another neighborhood where people are going to be isolated, uh, far away from shopping, from schools, from all the things that they want to, that they need for their day-to-day lives. So, um, you know, there's a big component of our program, which is just education about how our how our current system, political systems work, and the ways that young people can engage and become leaders, um, the leaders of tomorrow. You know, I would say part of it is in response to looking at, um, you know, many of the people who are currently involved in the um, uh, in the battles to protect the green belt and. Uh, Many, many of the people in the in that are engaged are like myself, older people of a previous generation, um, and uh, and we're working hard to try and make sure that the next generation of leaders is coming up behind us. So that's a big part of our program is uh, environmental teaching the next generation to become environmental leaders. That's really great. I'm so glad that the Greenbelt has um, taken this initiative with EcoSpark. Definitely from my experience, it has been very hard from what I've seen to like hear other youth's perspectives, even like in university. Um, I'm grateful that I'm able to like be more aware of climate science and climate change and environmentalism through like different grassroots. I feel like there's been a surge of that in the past few years. Um, Youth are really starting to understand a lot more about like environments like policies and like really understanding like more of the government's like work towards environment and different um, plans for environmental like conservation. So this youth like program seems really very interesting to me. Now, since this is a partnership like um, with the Greenbelt, I wanted to maybe ask you like, could you possibly speak to some of like their goals, like the Greenbelt's goals, um, just as its own conservation plan? Sure. Um, one of the things about the green belt is it's, um, you know, it's some of the best farmland that we have in Canada. Some of our top rated farmland falls within the green belt. And, um, you know, we, we currently live in this globalized world where, you know, um, we go to the grocery store and we see, I can get any kind of food from anywhere, just about any time. Um, and the challenge is there's a big uh, there's a big climate uh, climate change impact from being able to buy food from anywhere, anytime. You know, there's a lot of uh, um, shipping involved in moving those, you know, fruits and vegetables from one part of the world to the other. And we have this amazing farmland right in our own backyard. And so protecting that farmland and making sure it's there for tomorrow and for the future, when we might not have the same distribution system for our food. Um, You know, there are climate changes causing all kinds of disruptions all around the world. And so um, there are major droughts happening in areas that have been, um, you know, part of uh, the food basket for the the world. And so we need to think in terms of what is that going to look like in the future? And are we protecting the, the farmland we will need Um, that is close to home. So that's one of the things. The other would be, um, you know, looking at uh, 
protecting our air and our water quality. Um, the green belt uh, is, you know, it's it's a level of uh, environmental infrastructure that, you know, protects the cities uh, around it. So when we look at uh, things like flooding, you know, we're having, we're seeing more storms that are more intense than they have been in the past. And, um, and one of the challenges that we have in the greater Toronto area is we have paved over so much, uh, so much, um, land that uh, we now have so many hard surfaces that more water is running off and getting into our sewer systems. And when we have major weather events, we're seeing that back up and we're having more flooding. So um, making sure that we have uh, farmland and forests and, uh, and meadows and that we're protecting the areas along our rivers and streams um, is really important for us in, in adapting to climate change um, and protecting ourselves from the impacts of climate change. So uh, there's that. And then there's just a real, a real mental health aspect as well. Um, you know, living in a big city, we're bombarded with noise and we're, we've got all kinds of uh, pollution and, you know, we've, we've got tens of thousands or hundred thousands of vehicles, um, you know, putting all sorts of pollutants into the air every day. Um, and so the green belt and the forests on the green belt help filter that air. But there's also this really wonderful aspect, which is, you know, we've got all kinds of great hiking trails and conservation authorities and, you know, different places, river valleys throughout the, the greater Toronto area, the Greater Golden Horseshoe, um, where people can get out and they can learn to relax and to slow down their life and to become one with nature again. And, uh, and just to have that place to pause and to, uh, um, to learn to love the things around us and to take our families out and, you know, whether it's going apple picking or it's, uh, you know, going on a wine tour or you know, any variety of things. There's some real, uh, some real gems that help us in our, you know, maintaining our own mental health. So um, the green belt serves a whole lot of different purposes. Um, it provides great farmland, uh, you know, all sorts of ecosystem services and mental health services as well. Definitely. Um, the, the horseshoe has really improved like physical mental health for Ontarians who really need that like recreation um and something to do to like understand nature better and it's also for there's also tourism in those areas um like you said the area is definitely it protects a lot of farmland wetlands watersheds um and also greenbelt land really provides like fertile soil and resources um it can even contribute to like moderate climates for like agricultural production and general like economy. So maybe could you possibly speak to how the green belt is an economic driver in Ontario? So as you've mentioned, there's uh, um, tourism, and uh, there are lots of uh, great things to see and do um, around the well, on and around the the green belt. So um, there are recreational opportunities, whether that's going hiking at a local conservation authority. Um, or, you know, going canoeing or any variety of those things. There's the, the employment that is 
provided and the and the food that is provided from our agricultural lands, um, which is a, a huge uh, part of Ontario's economy. Um, we also have some really great fruit growing areas um, uh, that are part of the green belt and part of the you know. Uh, I mean, the green belt is part of a, a bigger protected zone. So there's the Oak Ridges Moraine, the green belt, and the Niagara um, Escarpment uh, Protection Plan. And as those things come together, we have, uh, you know, lots and lots of places where you can go and uh, whether it's going to a winery for a tour, um, going and picking your own fruit. So there's there's a bunch of different uh, economic opportunities there, um, and and the green belt is a, a big driver of Ontario's economy and uh, um, keeping us on a on a healthy path forward. When we think in sort of in another term, um, and we think about uh, the cost of living in the Greater Toronto area, um, housing is very expensive. And, um, and the thing that uh, really drives the cost of housing is the density targets. Um, if you're building, you know, uh, say 100 feet of uh, sewer line and you're going to serve uh, only four big houses out in the country, um, the cost for each house to be connected to that sewer is going to be very high. Um, whereas if you live, you know, in a city where there's higher population density, um, instead of serving four families with that sewer system, you might serve 20 or 30 families with that service. And so that actually helps bring down the cost of living. And if you have higher population densities, you also have more stores and, and uh, services, whether that's, you know, dentists or hairdressers or you know, the services we need on a day-to-day -day basis that are within walking distance of our home. So um, it, it means that, you know, we're actually building a more cost-effective future um, and making a, a future that's actually a, a healthier future because when we actually can walk um, and interact and get the services we need without getting into a car, it means there's more money in our own pockets um, and we're living a healthier lifestyle. So we're not, uh, you know, we spend too much time in cars and not enough time using active transportation and building suburbs or, you know, urban sprawl is not, uh, it's not inducive to active transportation, which we all need to get out and walk and interact with each other a little bit more and, uh, the, the best way to do that is to leave our cars at the car lot or, you know, just not yeah. take on the streets. So, yeah. Absolutely. I've really noticed that as well. Um, as someone who doesn't have a license, I'm definitely more of a walker um, and really just using transit um, and also proximity to different areas. Like you said, Toronto is, is extremely expensive now um, for living here, for students, for youth. Um, and now amidst like the pandemic, the pandemic has really impacted our ability to go to these spaces and engage with um, sort of like nature spaces and like protection um, and really understand, like be a part of programs that help with environmental education. Um, but there has been some, some leeway um, now that 
the encouragement of natural spaces, like doing things outdoors, like markets outdoors. And if we do have educational programs, doing them in like parks, um, wherever we can, since um, the indoor to like protect and like avoid transmission of COVID-19. Um, since, yeah. since the pandemic has really uh, kind of broken out in like early 2020, um, how have natural spaces um, provided by the Green Belt's plans? Like, have they helped you in any way? Have you used them? Oh, yeah, no, I've, I, I definitely get out and hike on the, the Green Belt hikes. And the Green Belt Foundation on their website has a great space where they, you know, uh, highlight some of the different hiking areas you can go to on the uh, Green Belt. There are cycling tours. Um, there are farmers markets and things. So I've definitely taken advantage of all of those things. And with the Greenbelt uh, River Valley. So, you know, the Humber, I, I live not too far from the Humber River. And, you know, I walk the river pretty regularly. And, uh, and there are, I would say, probably tens of thousands of people who walk the Humbers, the, the Don Valley, um, you know, the Rouge. Um, uh, walk these rivers on a regular basis as a way to get out. And, uh, you know, during the pandemic, it, it allowed us to actually, you know, do some social gathering, but while socially distancing and uh, um, in a fairly safe way where we're, you know, we're not inside worried about uh, sharing uh, COVID and, uh, and we're actually able to interact with others in uh, in a, a nice way. So whether it's, you know, um, hiking or skiing or, you know, uh, just out for a local stroll, there's lots and lots of uh, um, benefits that I personally have, have taken advantage of during the, the pandemic. I, can I make a comment about something you were, you were saying that you don't have a license? <laughs> you know, one, no. one, <laughs> when I... Uh, when I think about the youth perspective, and I think in particular to, uh, you know, um, the provincial government pushing to build the new 413 highway and to build the Bradford bypass and, uh, and thinking about the youth perspective, um, you know, I have a, a friend who's got a daughter who's, you know, in second year university or third year university, and he's been pushing her to get her license. And um, and her response is, you know, why would I need a license? I'm not going to have to drive like, you know, I'm going to basically call a car and it's going to come and pick me up and take me where I want to go. And uh, she actually said to her dad, like, you know, do you know how to ride a horse? <laughs> and he was like, uh, no. And it's like, well, you know, if you were born at that transition between the horse and carriage and the car, you know, would you be saying, well, I have to learn how to ride a horse? Or would you be saying horses are going to be obsolete as a form of transportation? So I don't need to do that. And I think that's one of the challenges for our government is, you know, they're building infrastructure that is for yesterday and not the infrastructure we need for tomorrow, which is, you know, building the um, the intercity transit and uh, and making it so, you know, you can go from, uh, say, Burlington to Oakville to 
to Mississauga, to Brampton, to Vaughan, you know, you can go all across the Greater Golden Horseshoe using a regional transportation system. Instead of building more highways, so everybody is trying to do it one at a time, you know? Um, so that's that to me is one of our big concerns. How do we get that youth voice and get the youth saying, what is the world going to look like tomorrow? What is the world that I want to live in? Not, you know, I want to see you build more of yesterday's world. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I've really never considered um, getting a license quickly. I know a lot of people get it like when they're, you know, 16, 17, they really want it young. But for me, I feel like definitely walking and just taking general transit um, is more of my, like, I'm pretty comfortable with that. Um, and I agree. I think there's a lot of ways to get around to different areas using transit. Um, for me, like I'm at McGill. So when I use transit in Montreal, um, I really just kind of like going maybe just to the gym or something, but usually I walk around because there's really a lot of good local stores and there's a lot of good parks that is easily like walkable and like walking distance. Um, even in Toronto, when I'm visiting Toronto, uh, I, I find I find it's the same. I find it's like the 501, 504, it's like pretty easy to just go where I need to go that way. Um, and so, yeah, like you mentioned, definitely like urbanization is a huge issue within Ontario and the Greenbelt is really working to combat against that and figure out how we can increase climate resiliency. So I guess I wanted to ask you, um, what role does the Greenbelt really have in climate resiliency and the need to adapt to our changing environment, maybe in your perspective? Sure. Um, so the Greenbelt, um, as I mentioned, you know, uh, it actually helps absorb a lot of water um, and captures that where we need it in our farmland, which is really great. Um, our river valleys provide local, um, local covered areas. They help control the temperatures of the stream with the forest and the trees along the side, um, which provides, um, you know, Temperature, the water in the streams can get too warm for fish to breed and to live in the streams. And uh, so by protecting the, the river valleys, we're actually protecting the life of all the species that live there. Um, and we're filtering water in a way that, uh, you know, means that there's less impact on the, the water quality in the lake, which is where we get our water source from. Um, so there's, you know, the, the Greenbelt provides all kinds of ecosystem services for us. Um, it reduces the temperature. So if you're looking at, um, you know, a city like Toronto or whatever, cities have what they call heat sinks. And uh, so the temperature uh, in a city is typically a few degrees higher than it is in the surrounding area. And and it also holds the heat longer. So at nighttime, um, when, you know, surrounding areas often will get cooler in the evening, the city is still warmer. And, uh, and that's one of the challenges that we face because uh, um, while we do see daytime temperatures going up, what we see even more is the, the nighttime temperatures aren't coming down. And, uh, and that's a real challenge, whether that's, you know, people trying to sleep, it increases the amount of air conditioning that we need. Um, so, you know, all of those things 
Um, if we can protect our forests and our green spaces around the cities, will actually help us have cooler air coming into the city and uh, um, and help some of that heat dissipate faster, which will uh, make our cities look more livable as well. What I found interesting reading statistics about the Green Belt, it protects really 78 species at risk. It produces 22, $224 million in flood protection um, and 3.2 billion of like ecosystem services. There's a lot of like smart investment that I feel has been uh, created with the Green Belt's establishment. Um, and it really seems like a, a great asset for Ontario's future and its environment. Could you maybe speak a bit more on like how the Green Belt's establishment is an asset in this part of investment? I guess in some ways the Green Belt, um, you know, a big part of the Green Belt and developing the Green Belt was understanding um, the greater Toronto area. We're looking at significant population growth over the next, you know, 40 to 50 years. And recognizing that, you um, if we just continue with business as usual, we're going to actually pave over, you know, as, as I like to say, we're going to pave over paradise um, and, uh, and we're going to end up with just a hot, soupy mess that uh, is going to have all kinds of problems. So um, with the with the green belt, we're saying, you know, let's build our cities more sustainably. So let's uh, look at better ways of doing this. Um, so that we have mixed use, so you can live, walk, and and work all in the same area. You can shop in the same area. So, uh, you know, with establishing the green belt, we sort of said we're going to put some some restrictions on the way we plan, but those restrictions are going to make a better um, a better, more livable uh, region in in the long run. And, uh, and they're going to help us, you know, have access to all the different pieces of things that we need. And, uh, you know, without the green belt, we probably would see more sprawl with, you know, neighborhoods popping up in the middle of nowhere. We would see more farmland that's just simply being converted into subdivisions where nobody grows their own food. <laughs> Everybody has, you know, three or four cars and, uh, you know, and it's just not a sustainable way to live. So putting some boundaries on it makes us think differently and it helps us to actually plan for a future that uh, includes uh, many of the ecosystem services that we all need to live, even if we're not aware of them on a day-to-day -day basis. So, yeah. Definitely. I feel like um, also with the Greenbelt, um, expanding it has been, there's been a lot of calls to action to try and expand it instead of other infrastructure projects or something like that so that like, these different regions like ecosystems can be can really have that um, sustainability and they can live longer in december 2021 there was uh, the green belt west coalition it was made up of 25 environmental groups they stated that they wanted to really focus on encouraging the provincial government to expand the green belt um, and from what you said also about like farmland and um, economic factors with urban development and sprawl being a key threat to the green belt. Maybe can you speak to the importance of like protecting the regions, maybe on a personal level in your work? Sure. One of my biggest concerns and fears, the things that keep me up at night are, you know, are we going to leave a sustainable planet for young people today? And, um, 
And looking at, you know, the green belt that we have now and looking at the Oak Ridges Moraine and the uh, Niagara Escarpment uh, plan, um, and you see there's a bunch of pieces and they kind of work together. Um, but there's also lots and lots more land outside of the current green belt that really should be protected. And, um, and so far, we haven't done that. You know, the Canadian government has is, is, uh, signed a pledge to protect a certain amount of cannabis territory um, through parks and parklands and stuff. And Ontario has a, a share of that they need, they need to take on. And, um, and we're not there yet. So, you know, if we can look at how we bring the green belt together and look at growing the green belt in areas where we have very significant uh, wetlands, where we have, you know, very, um, you know, prime agricultural land, all of those things, the sooner that we protect it and make sure that it's protected, the sooner we can think more about how do we develop sustainably in and around those boundaries. So that um, we have a combination of, you know, we've got a protected land, but the people also have the access to go and to use the land for recreation and for less impactful activities than, you know, building a subdivision and paving over it and putting in all kinds of uh, infrastructure that uh, means that that land is only for use for a small number of people instead of everyone else, which we know as we're growing the population within the greater Toronto area that we are going to need more recreational land and access to more uh, public land that uh, is going to help people with mental health and with all those other things. And we need to make sure that we're not paving over areas that are going to then cause more flooding downstream. So, and, uh, and if we don't change the way that we're developing, if we don't expand the, the green belt, we're going to end up with more and more of these types of problems happening on a more often basis. And, um, and they, you know, they have very, very significant impacts economically for the people that live within the greater golden horseshoe um you know there are lots of trucks that if they can't get through they can't deliver the groceries to the grocery store um you know there are people who are trying to get home because you know they have to pick up their kids from daycare but they can't get through because everything is flooded underneath um so there are all kinds of those types of impacts that uh um, if we don't actually protect the green belt and, and these uh, ecosystem, these areas of, of healthy ecosystems, we're going to have a lot more downstream impacts as well. And so um, there's that cost of mitigating climate and there's, you know, oh, we can spend money to try and capture carbon and store it underground, or we can actually protect the natural areas that have been absorbing carbon and protecting our environment for a long time, why we transition to, you know, cleaner fuels that just don't have the carbon emissions. So. Thank you so much for sharing that, Paul. I really agree. I think definitely like for youth and for citizens, um, I'm really in a transition point myself from being like a youth to a citizen. Um, being second year university, that's really kind of what I'm really adulting, if you rather put it, and just kind of understanding how to navigate cities, like how to sustainably look after food and like um, engage with nature. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Is there anything else you'd like to add or comment on before we end off here? 
No, I'm, I, you know, I want to say thank you. Thank you to the Greenbelt Foundation. Uh, thanks to Shake Up the Establishment. We need to do a lot of shaking. <laughs> That's the idea. In this episode, we've outlined the Greenbelt's establishment, its significance, and the plethora of resources it provides to Ontarian communities. Thank you, Daniel Taylor and Paul Miro, for taking the time to share your insightful perspectives with us. And thank you, our audience, for joining us in this established episode. If you like what you hear, check out our work at Shake Up the Establishment. You can find us on our Instagram or website to continue learning about important topics like environmental stewardship, social justice issues, and political accountability. That's S-H-A-K-E-U-P-T-H-E-E-S-T-A-B dot O-R-G. And find us under the same name on Instagram. To learn more about the Greenbelt, visit the Greenbelt Foundation online.